Well, as we will see this morning in our message, Jesus predicted that he would die at the hands of evil men, even though no one wanted to hear that or believe that, including his closest associates. And he also predicted that on the third day, he would rise from the dead. By the way, both of those predictions did come true. In fact, everything Jesus has said has come true so far. And therefore, I think we can be pretty sure that the remaining prophecies of Scripture will also come true. The next thing to happen with regard to the prophecies of Jesus, because he was a prophet, he is a prophet, he's not just a prophet, he is the Son of God, he is God incarnate. He predicted, and not just predicted, he promised that he would come again. I think based upon his track record, we can pretty much take it to the bank that he's coming again. Would you agree with that? I also find it quite interesting. Now Jesus said that before his return, the gospel would be preached all over the world to all four corners of the globe. Now some try to argue that that really hasn't happened yet. That there must still be some remote, isolated tribe somewhere that hasn't heard. But if that's true, it's, there's, it's not by much. Because we know that groups like the Whitecliffe Bible Translators, our own Hosanna Ministries here in Albuquerque, have translated the Scriptures into just about every language that we know of. And I'd like to make another point, and that is when you look at the way the entire world has been impacted by the gospel of Christ and the message of the resurrection, it would be hard to argue that the gospel has not reached all four corners of the globe. I don't know of any other famous, historical, religious figure that receives the worldwide notice that Jesus gets. Again, there are so many that deny. Some would even try to deny that he ever really existed. That's but that kind of fits in with the mentality of the day, doesn't it? There are people today who are not even sure if they exist, <laughs> let alone if Jesus existed. But it's a historical fact. Anybody who can be rational and logical and look at the evidence would have to admit, yes, Jesus really did come into this world 2,000 years ago, and he really did travel around Israel publicly ministering for three and a half years with 12 apostles. That's just an historical fact. But of course, there are multitudes who deny the resurrection. They just can't buy into that. Well, they could buy into the fact that maybe he was a good man, perhaps somewhat misguided, though. He was a good man, a good teacher, so on and so forth. But they deny the resurrection, and yet I would propose to you that the resurrection is just as much of a historical fact as the fact that he existed. And one of the many proofs would be certainly different religious groups, different faith-based groups have their localized celebrations. I don't know exactly what they are, but I only know of one man in all of human history that twice a year 
the whole world that the whole world may not celebrate, but the whole world is sure aware of the fact that he was born in Bethlehem in a manger. We know December 25th probably isn't the day, but that doesn't really matter. The fact is he was born, and he was born into this world for one purpose, and that was to die for the sins of the human race. A worldwide celebration every year. You can turn on your TV. They have a satellite feed from every corner of the globe. There are believers in every nation of this world. Not everybody in those nations believes, but many do. And then it happens again on this day, Resurrection Day, or as some like to call it Easter, which really comes from a pagan background. That's why we try to use the phrase Resurrection Day here. We're not going to condemn you or judge you if you say Easter. Sometimes I say it just because I know that's what most people relate to is the term Easter. Many well-intentioned, good-hearted believers still use the word Easter, but I think Resurrection Day is a better way to put it. But on this day, all over the world, of course, in some corners of the globe, it's later than it is here. The whole world is reminded once again. That's quite an amazing achievement for something that never really happened, wouldn't you say? I mean, I don't see how anybody could argue against the fact that no one else in the history of the human race has impacted the whole world the way that Jesus Christ has. And I'm telling you, even if they put Robert Mueller on the case, and by the way, well, I don't know if I should go there. That would be like putting Caiaphas the high priest and the top 18 members of the Sanhedrin on the case to investigate Jesus. In fact, that's what they did, and they illegally tried him and crucified him. Oh, but these guys were the top of the top, were they not? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests. I mean, they were, they were it, right? But they got it wrong, didn't they? But like I said last week, they got it wrong, but it's to our benefit that they did. Because now we have the opportunity to be forgiven of our sins and receive the precious gift of eternal life through the risen Christ. In fact, I was reminded again the other day, oh man, what is his name now, Frank? I can't remember his last name. The guy that did that investigation on the resurrection, he was a non-believer, he was a journalist. He was determined to prove that the resurrection was false and he wound up becoming a believer. That's what happens when somebody objectively, without bias, investigates the claims of Christ. Sadly, many people are already biased. They've already been predetermined in their own mind, or they've been told by someone else what they should believe about Jesus. But this man, anybody remember his name? No, that's not, not Lee Strobel. There's another guy, Frank. Huh? I can't hear you. That doesn't sound like the guy I'm thinking of. Anyway, I didn't. anyway, it was a famous book, and I don't even remember the title of the book, but the point is, whenever anybody looks at the claims of Christ without bias, without prejudice, the only logical, rational decision that one can make is that he really is the Son of God, and he did, really did rise from the dead. That's why children's ministry is so important, because kids have not yet been corrupted and polluted by this world. And their hearts are like soft, tender soil. 
ready to have the truth planted into their hearts and minds. I've shared my testimony many times. I got saved at about four years of age, and I'm so thankful that I did. Not everybody can say that, and it doesn't matter when, as long as you get saved, right? Even if it's on your deathbed. Others might mock that and say, well, sure, now that he's going to die, he's going to receive Jesus. That's a good time to receive Jesus, because after you die, it's too late. But the sooner the better. I've never, never met anyone who has said, gee, I wish I would have waited a while before I received Jesus. I've met a lot of people who said, I wish you'd have done it sooner. Right? I'm just um, riffing here. We're not into the message yet. And I could go on. The point is, it would be difficult to say which day, which celebration would be more important? Obviously, if Christ had not been born, he couldn't have died for our sins. But had he come into this world and not made that sacrifice, you and I would still be lost. So those two days together comprise what I believe are the most important events in human history. The birth of Christ, the death of Christ, and then ultimately the resurrection. Which, of course, the crucifixion and the resurrection took place over a period of three days. So we're going to take a look at that, what happened on the first day of the week. Christ has been crucified. He's been placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Two of the Pharisees, they were in the minority, but they were the, two of the ones who believed in Christ. All they, they tried to keep it on the down low. But when it came time to do something with his body to honor him in his death. He'd been humiliated on the cross. Joseph and Nicodemus stepped forward. Joseph offered his own tomb, which was most likely a cave. In ancient Israel, they would find a cave or carve out a space in a mountainside or in a piece of rock, creating a tomb. They placed his body there, the Sabbath was about to begin. They wouldn't be able to handle the body once Sabbath began, so they had to hastily prepare his body with a few spices and linens and so forth and place him in that tomb on Friday afternoon. The Jews did not practice embalming, nor they, do they to this day as far as I know. That was considered a pagan practice, came from the Egyptians, they believed in letting the body return naturally to the earth. So the spices, the linens, uh, the linens were to keep the spices in place. And the spices were to decrease the odor as the body decomposed. And it was a last act of respect for the departed. And so we're going to pick it up on Sunday morning. Let's pray. Father God, we ask you to bless this time in your word. We pray that you'd cause the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to come alive in our hearts and minds here again today. And Lord, for anyone here that doesn't know Jesus, anyone here that has not been born again by the Spirit of God, that today you would bring them over. You would help them to cross over from darkness into light and from death into life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 24, verse 1. If you're using your Bible, turn to Luke 24. 
Otherwise, you can see it up on the screen. Now, on the first day of the week, and that would be Sunday. And even though in our culture, in our society, we kind of put Sunday at the end of the week, and historically for our nation as a Christian nation, which we know that's less and less of a reality every day, but the idea was you would work Monday through Saturday. That's kind of old school, right? People worked hard. We have it a lot easier nowadays. The pioneers, the people who settled this land, worked long and hard. So Monday through Saturday, and then the Christian worship day, Sunday, was a day of rest. Businesses closed. There were no Walmarts. And if there had been Walmarts, they would have been closed. How many of you remember those days? Anyway, for the Jews, the end of their week was the Sabbath, which began sundown on Friday and ends, and I say past tense, but of course, for those Jewish people, this is still the case. The Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday, ends at sundown on Saturday. And that's a big deal, boy, over in Israel, especially if you're in Israel on the Sabbath, the minute the sun goes down on Saturday, it's party time. Everybody's out and about, all the shops reopen, and they stay open really late because those poor Jewish people, man, almost went nuts with 24 hours and nothing open. Just like Americans would go nuts today if everything closed on Sunday again, right? Oh my, what will I do? And by the way, when I was a kid and everything closed on Sunday, there was no internet, there were no cell phones, iPads, computers. Man, this guy's old. <laughs> there were no video games. We had things like bicycles. And we had skateboards even then. They weren't as cool as the ones nowadays. My dad took a couple of pairs of metal roller skates, took the rollers off and nailed them on the bottom of a board, and that was my skateboard. <laughs> but I was a pioneer, you see. Anyway, it's the Sabbath. It's the first, uh, rather, it's the first day of the week. It's Sunday. The, the Jewish week ends with the Sabbath, and then Sunday, you're back to work. It's the first day of the week. It's very early in the morning. Think sunrise, and that's why a lot of churches have sunrise services. We prefer to sleep in and have a nice leisurely pancake breakfast and then a 10 o'clock service. <laughs> but for some people, that sunrise service is very important, and that's cool too. But here we are. We're celebrating the resurrection, are we not? They, and I'll tell you who they is in a moment, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. So, as I mentioned, Joseph and Nicodemus did a, just a quickie, uh, just a minimal amount of preparation because they were running out of time. In Mark 16, 1, we are told that these ladies were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Mary Salome, or just, she's referred to as Salome. Her name was Mary Salome. Now, in chapter 23, verse 55 of Luke, it tells us that they were the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee. So there's actually a fairly sizable entourage of women. Where are the men? Where are the disciples? They're hiding. They're scared to death that they're going to be the next ones to be arrested and crucified. The mighty apostles. But doesn't that make you feel good? To know that they're no different than you and I? 
They were just as capable. Having spent three years with Jesus personally, how many of you would like to have that opportunity? Well, you're going to get an eternity to do that. But these men had an opportunity to spend three or three and a half years with Jesus, and yet after he was crucified, they were so scared, they went into hiding, and it was the ladies who came out to do a better preparation for the body of Christ, the literal body of Christ. Now, in verse 10 of this chapter of Luke, it tells us it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, so there's another lady now mentioned, Mary, the mother of James, and others with them who told this to the apostles. So several ladies were involved in this process of going to the tomb to do a better preparation. Luke 23, 56. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. So they went home, got all these things together. Then they celebrated the Sabbath and waited till the next morning, sunrise, to go to the tomb. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now, the significance here is that this stone would have been between one and a half and two tons. And it had been lodged in front of the doorway. There's actually a place just right outside the gates of the old city of Jerusalem called the Garden Tomb. Many people believe this is the real deal. And it's, it's a beautiful garden. It's overseen by a, a Christian group from Great Britain. And there is a tomb there. And I mean, it has all the accoutrements. It, it looks like the real deal. And there's a groove there. The stone is not there anymore. But there is a notch. There's a groove that runs slightly downhill where they would have been able to roll this stone. But it would have been a round, circular, flat stone, kind of like what you would, uh, like a millstone, only very, very large. And it would have been rolled, it would have been kept in place until the appropriate time and then rolled downhill and lodged in front of the doorway. Obviously, the purpose, to keep intruders out of the tomb or cave. Now, remember, as we... Study the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're told that the tomb had been sealed by the Roman authorities and guarded, Matthew 27, 62 through 66. Now, the seal that they would place on that tomb, a wax seal, it stood for the power and the authority of the Roman Empire. The consequences of breaking the seal were extremely severe. The Roman equivalent of the FBI, the CIA, would have been called into action to find the man or the men who were responsible. And if they were apprehended, it meant automatic execution by crucifixion upside down. And yet, when the ladies come, they found the stone rolled away. How did this happen? What happened to those guards? Matthew 28, 2 through 4. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven... And came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Kind of a neat scenario, isn't it? He's just kind of sitting up there waiting for these ladies to show up. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So, 
totally freaked out these Roman guards, these hardened, hardcore, disciplined, unflinching Roman guards who were in jeopardy of losing their lives if they were to fail to keep their responsibilities of guarding this tomb and keeping it sealed. They ultimately fled. They left their place of responsibility. How can this be explained when Roman military was so strict? A man named Justin in his Digest number 49 mentions all the offenses that required the death penalty for Roman soldiers. The fear of their commanding officer's wrath and the possibility of death meant that they paid close attention to even the smallest details of their jobs. One way a guard was put to death was by being stripped of his clothes and then burned alive and a fire started with his own garments. If it could not be determined which soldier had failed in his duty, then lots were drawn to see which one would be punished with death for the guard unit's failure. So you could be totally innocent and wind up being the sacrificial lamb, as it were. There's no way the entire unit would not have fallen asleep with that kind of threat hanging over their heads. Or that they would have fallen asleep, rather. Dr. George Curry, a student of Roman military discipline, wrote that fear of punishment produced flawless attention to duty, especially in the night watches. Something extremely extraordinary. And we just read what it was. There was a great earthquake, and then this angel appears... And his face was like lightning. And he moves the stone. It would have taken at least two men to roll it downhill to put it into place. One angel moved it uphill with no problem. And then he perches himself on top of the stone. This had to have been a supernatural event. There's no way these Roman soldiers would have neglected their duty and allowed this to happen. So then these ladies in verse 3, they went in to the tomb and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, by the way, this is exactly what these women expected to find, a dead body. Do you realize that? These ladies were not coming there to celebrate the resurrection, okay? They're bringing spices and linens and so forth to finish the burial preparation of a dead Jesus. Get it? They went in looking for the body and they didn't find it. Matthew 27, 62 and 63. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation for Passover, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how the deceiver said, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. They were worried they knew that Jesus had made this prediction. Sadly, they almost seemed more of a, aware of it than his own disciples. Even the, the chief priests knew that Jesus had predicted his resurrection, and yet his closest followers had no expectation of finding a living, breathing, resurrected Jesus. How realistically and honestly the Bible portrays this whole series of events is yet another confirmation of the truth and the factuality of what's being said here. There's no flowery covering over of what went down. No wonder Jesus referred six times in the Gospels to his disciples as having 
little faith. Remember he would say that? Oh, ye of little faith. And by the way, we're no different. We better be careful before we become too critical of the apostles, right? Over and over again, Jesus is, or God has proved himself faithful, and yet we continue to doubt him, let's be honest. Thank God that his faithfulness is not affected by our unbelief, amen? And see, again, I don't want to veer off too far, but some of these word of faith teachings make it sound like everything depends on you and me. If you get sick, you didn't have enough faith. If you die, you really didn't have enough faith. And so on and so forth it goes. If your bank account's empty, it's because you don't have enough faith. Could it possibly be you don't have enough money? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> That'll usually result in an empty bank account, will it not? Oh, ye of little faith. Over and over again, God has proved himself faithful. But the good news, his faithfulness is not affected by our unbelief. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. This is a faithful saying, writes Paul, for if we died with him, and by the way, did you know that's what it means to become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, to become a disciple of Christ, to be born again, is that you have to die with him? Did you know that? We're supposed to die to self. Jesus said, take up your cross. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Paul said, I no longer live. I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. That's how it's supposed to be. Is it possible that modern Christianity has drifted away from that? I think it has in many instances. If we died with him, but here's the good news. This is why we have to die with him. We need to die with him. It's good to die with him. We shall also live with him. Where does he live? In heaven. He's with the Father. We shall also live with him. Jesus told the thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. Remember? If we endure, persevere, hang in there, don't give up, don't throw in the towel, don't take the easy route. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Can you imagine? I can't even, it's hard for me to even grasp. What about you? We'll actually be reigning with Christ. But see, that's a result of being willing to suffer for Him in this life, to die to self. And then ultimately, the reward is we live forever and we reign with Him. I think that's a pretty good deal. What about you? We have to endure for a little while in this life for an eternity of amazing glory with God. If we deny Him, this is a biggie. He also will deny us. And that's the whole ballgame, folks. Because how do we get into heaven? You bring your resume. You bring your dossier. Here are my credentials, Lord. Where's my mansion? And that's not how it works. When we get there, we stand before the Father. The Father looks at Jesus and says, Yay or nay? And you better hope Jesus says yay. Right? But if you deny him in this life, he's not going to say yay. If we deny him, what's he going to do? He's going to deny us. I don't think that's unfair to you. God is holy and righteous and just in all of his ways. If we deny him, 
He also will deny us. If we are faithless. See, there's a difference between denial and being faithless. You can acknowledge Him, but there are at least times in our lives as believers, let's be honest, when we might be somewhat lacking in faith. Have you ever experienced that? If we are faithless, He remains faithful. I would say at the point that the disciples all fled in fear, and that's why we see only women going to the tomb. Big old fisherman Peter, he was hiding. You know, James and John, the sons of thunder. Lord, should we nuke them? Let's nuke those guys, Lord. Oh, no, we're not going to do that. They're all hiding. They're all in fear. I would say at that point they were faithless. Jesus clearly told them he was going to rise from the dead, yet none of them expected it. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. In the immortal words of Popeye the sailor man, I am what I am. And Jesus is the great I am. He cannot deny himself. And if you're a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he lives in you. Therefore, to deny you when you've not denied him, even though you might be faithless at that point, he cannot deny himself. Verse 4. And it happened. Just as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. They were greatly perplexed. There was not an immediate reaction. Oh, wow, he's risen! We love to say that on Resurrection Day, don't we? In fact, it wouldn't hurt if we said it every day. He is risen. And indeed. That's not what these ladies were saying. They're saying, what in the heck happened here? Where's the body? What could have happened? Someone must have stolen his body. See, they weren't able really at this point to uh, put all the pieces of the puzzle together. and say, wait a minute. The stone's been rolled away. The guards are gone. There's an angel sitting up on a rock here. They still couldn't put it all together. Too much. But then two angels show up. Could have been the one guy plus another. Could have been two different ones. We don't know. It tells us two men stood by them in shining garments. Or I believe one translation says in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood. Two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood. Now either these two men were ancient Israeli rock stars or they were angels. Obviously the two men were angels. Luke 24, 23, when they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. So they, re they realized and recognized. Now Luke describes these men as angels. And as you look through the Bible, or he describes them as men, they look like men. Throughout the Old and New Testament, we find that angels appear as men. However, not normal men because their faces are like lightning. Clothes that gleamed like lightning. These are obviously what we would consider supernatural beings. But the ladies realized that they had had a, an angelic visitation. Now, in their fright, verse 5, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. 
And again, that's a common reaction we see in the Scriptures when human beings, when mortals, find themselves in the presence of God's holy angels. There's, there's a tendency to want to bow before them, but they're always told, don't worship us. Daniel was told that. John was told that in the book of Revelation. Angels are not to be worshipped. They are the servants of God, and they're actually our servants. They protect us. They watch over us. They are the messengers of God. So the ladies bowed down, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? Again, the most common response to angelic visitations was fright. And anyone who paints a different picture most likely has not really seen an angel. Why do you look for the living among the dead? This is really what we would call the $64,000 question, isn't it? See, normally if you're looking for someone who's alive, you don't go down to the graveyard, do you? These ladies went to the tomb looking for a dead body. So the angels have just subtly told the ladies, Jesus is alive. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? I love the way they put that. You're looking in the wrong place, ladies. He is not here, but is what? Risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee. Here's a very important phrase. They didn't say to these ladies, come on now, ladies. Remember how you felt when you were in the presence of the Lord? Remember those warm, fuzzy feelings? Weren't those great times? They said, remember his words. Remember how he spoke to you. Remember what he told you. Because again, all of his followers, the minute he began to speak to them of his impending death, they kind of mentally and emotionally shut down. They couldn't deal with it. So they missed the part where he said, and three days later I'm going to rise from the dead. The Son of Man, verse 7, these are the words that the angels are reminding these ladies of. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. Okay, yeah, Jesus said that would happen. It did. And be crucified. Yeah, that happened. And the third day, because you see, partial days count as a full day. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the third day. The third day, what would happen? He would rise again. The angels reminding them. They were too stricken with grief and disappointment to remember that the story has a good ending. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem because they did spend a lot of time in Galilee. They would go down occasionally to Jerusalem for the feasts and so forth. But a lot of Jesus' ministry took place in and around the region of Galilee. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and boy, did he, and be killed, they didn't want to hear that, and be raised the third day. Matthew 17, 9. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, this is after the transfiguration, tell the vision to no one. They saw him in all of his glory, speaking with Moses and Elijah, remember? You'd think that would be enough right there, wouldn't you? Wow. 
And they did believe. Peter said, you're the, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. They believed it. They just didn't expect the Christ, the Son of the living God, to be crucified. They expected him to reestablish the throne of David, drive out the Romans, and reinstitute the former glory of the nation of Israel. That wasn't why he came. He's coming back, and then he will establish the throne of David, and he will rule over this entire world. So when it, the Scriptures tell us that if we endure, we will reign with him, that's a pretty big deal. Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is what? Risen from the dead. Over and over again, he told them, yeah, I am going to die, but it's okay because I'm going to rise again. Matthew 17, 23, they will kill him. He's speaking about himself. And the third day he will be raised up. And they rejoiced. No. What does it say? They were exceedingly sorrowful. Sounds awfully familiar. Something we're going through right now in our own nation. Something that should cause people to rejoice. And it actually has made them sorrowful. The disciples were filled with grief. What about this last part? On the third day he'll be raised to life. Folks, again, we don't want to be too hard on the disciples. We have all been guilty of selective hearing. You know what I'm talking about? Hearing what we want to hear, not hearing what we don't want to hear. I can't hear you. You ever do that? Maybe you don't do it literally, but mentally. At the first sign of something we perceive to be negative, like, they're going to kill me, we shut down. John 16, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. Really? In the world you will have tribulation. Oh, and that makes me so peaceful. But be of good cheer. You need to listen to the whole thing, don't you? In the world you'll have tribulation. Bummer, dude, I don't like that. But be of good cheer. I, Jesus, have overcome the world. Therefore, if Jesus lives in you, guess what? You're an overcomer also. In the world you will have tribulation. I knew it. Great. It's all over for me, man. I'm done for. Wait a minute. What about take heart? I, Jesus, have overcome the world. It's important to listen to the whole thing. Some people are the type of people that finish other people's sentences for them. I confess I'm one of them. I'm not proud of it, but my wife will tell you that I do. I have, sometimes I get impatient, and they take too long to finish their sentence, so I finish it for them. I'm just being honest. You guys know me. If there's nothing else good you can say about me, you can, I am honest. I don't hide anything. I don't make things up. I'm not pretentious. I am who I am, for better or for worse. And I am that type of person. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying that's me. But do you hate it when others do that to you? When other people finish a sentence for you? Do you get frustrated? Yeah, I'm sure you do. My wife gets frustrated with me. Well, so here's the deal. We all need to stop trying to finish God's sentences for Him. Get it? And listen to everything that He has to say before we fly off the handle. You're going to die? Peter, no, no, Lord. That's never going to happen. I won't let it happen. Get thee behind me, Satan. 
You see what happens when you finish Jesus' sentences for him? Peter, you're not listening. You're not hearing the whole deal. Yeah, I am going to die, but I'm going to rise from the dead. Nobody's ever done that before. Not of their own volition. Elijah raised people from the dead. Jesus raised people from the dead during his earthly ministry, but nobody else ever has before or ever will after that raise themselves from the dead. You see? That's because he's God. Only God can do that. Paul writes, or is he speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 27, he's letting them know, he says, the blood of no man is on my hands. Why? For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. It's popular in many circles today to only read and study certain passages of Scripture, primarily the feel-good passages. Oh, we don't talk about sin here. That's, that's too offensive. We'd rather focus on the fact that we're all just good people. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. All of our good works are like filthy rags. I don't want to hear that. You shut down right there, right? I'm never going there again. I don't want to hear the word sin. I don't want to hear the word repent. I don't want to hear the word confess. And I really don't like talking about blood. It makes me very squeamish. In fact, can we, let's just skip the whole crucifixion thing and grow straight to the resurrection but without the crucifixion, there is no resurrection. Without the crucifixion, there is no sacrifice for the sins of the world. You see? We need to let God finish his sentences instead of trying to finish them for him. Remember how he spoke to you, ladies. Everything's going to start to come into focus. Verse 8, and then they remembered his words. With a little help and a little prompting from the angels and the Holy Spirit. So even though they'd heard Jesus say these things numerous times, they needed a little reminder. You've heard me talk about this so much. You've heard me say many times, the teaching and preaching of the Word of God, in many cases, is simply reminding us of that which deep down in our hearts we already know. The devil wants to suppress it. Our flesh wants to suppress it. God wants to make sure that we're consistently and constantly reminded. Jesus said in John 14, 26, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. How many of you here today have experienced this? You get in a situation where you really need some help, some guidance, some direction, the right words, and all of a sudden, a scripture pops into your mind that you didn't even know you knew. It's the Holy Spirit. But that happens because you've read God's Word, you've studied God's Word, and even though it might not be right at the tip of your tongue, in that moment when you need it the most, the Holy Spirit brings it to the surface. You see how that works? That's what happened with these ladies. They'd heard Jesus say these things, but they were so overtaken by their grief, they couldn't remember they were reminded, they were prompted to remember, and they remembered, and that changed everything. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, he says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received 
and on which you have taken your stand. And I think I've shared this before. There was a person that was not happy about the idea that we were part of the Calvary Chapel network. And they said, all they do is study the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. I've already done that. Okay, could you recite the whole thing to me now, please? Because if you can't, then I think it's worth another read. What do you think? I want to remind you of the gospel. Paul, we've already heard the gospel. Okay, repeat back to me now. Give me the gospel. And I've done that with people. And you'd be surprised how many people can't just give you a straightforward rendering of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I'd say you need to be reminded. What's the gospel? Oh, Jesus loves me. Yeah, that's true. Oh, he, he's made me a better person. Yeah. See, that's all... Those are all results of the gospel, but that's not the gospel. God helped me get a better job. God saved my marriage. That's good. I'm not mocking those things. That's not the gospel. You'd be surprised how many believers cannot give you a straightforward rendition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I say, I'm not going to stop doing this till I drop dead. I guess I put myself on the hook there, didn't I? So if I drop dead today, I guess you'll know God's done with me. You never know. And that's another good reason to keep doing what we're doing. Because all we really have is right now, right? Remember Dwight Moody, great preacher, great man of God, preached in Chicago one week before the great Chicago fire. Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over the lantern. You know the whole deal? How many of you, some of you young people may not know about that. Massive fire destroyed much of the city of Chicago. A lot of people died. Well, the Sunday before, Dwight Moody gave a message, an evangelistic message, but it was only part one. He was going to give part two the next Sunday, and then during part two, he was going to invite people to receive Christ. And he was so grief-stricken over the fact that many of the people that heard the first part of the message died in the fire. And he never had the opportunity to lead them to Christ. So he determined that he would never do that again, that every time he preached, he would give the opportunity for people to receive Christ. Because he knew from that experience there might not be a next Sunday. And that's true for anyone here today who doesn't know God. You don't know Christ. You've not been born again. This could be your last opportunity. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to use a fear tactic here. I'm simply speaking the truth. All any of us really have is the here and now, right now. We have no idea what's going to happen from moment to moment, minute to minute. Finally, Peter, 2 Peter 1, 12 through 15 so I will always remind you of these things, Peter says, at the risk of being redundant, but I'm going to do it anyway. Even though you know them, so even if you were to go away from here today saying, well, I already knew just about everything that guy said, you know what, I don't feel one bit bad about it. Not at all. I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory, says Peter. As long as I live, sounds like what I just said, doesn't it? 
As long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, the Lord had shown Peter his time on this planet was coming to an end. He would soon die for his Lord, crucified upside down. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. So as long as you come to this church, you can bank on it. I'm going to make sure you remember these things. Verse 9. Then they returned from the tomb. They still um, do not know that he's risen. And told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. This is the very essence of Christian testimony and witnessing. To tell others the truth about what yourself have seen. What exactly did they say? In fact, they had... At this point, I'm sorry I misspoke, they had seen the risen Christ, Matthew 28, verse 5 through 10. The angel said to the woman, or the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, he has risen. Just as he said, come and see where, the place where the, he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, yet filled with, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. We know that Mary, at the very least, if not the others, did see Jesus there at the tomb. You have to go through all the synoptic gospels to get the full picture. But the angels clearly gave them this message to give to the other apostles. And here he comes. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So this is the message they brought back. And as we saw earlier, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But here we go again. They, the apostles who were in hiding, when the ladies came to bring them this message, they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Even though... Jesus had told them these things would happen. Their words seemed to them like nonsense. All these women were doing was confirming that what Jesus had told them would happen had in fact happened. And of course we know ultimately Peter and John, they run to the tomb, they see for themselves that it's empty. But it wasn't until that night that Jesus appears before them. Judas is no longer with them, he's dead. Thomas wasn't in the room, so it would have been the ten. The initial appearance of Christ to his apostles, it was the ten men, and they would finally see the risen Christ. In the meantime, Peter and John had gone to the tomb. They're also perplexed, even as the women were. On Friday, Jesus died on the cross, and those who loved him mourned. On Sunday, he rose, and those who loved him rejoiced. Today, those who love Him are still rejoicing, are we not? The world says, folks, seeing is believing. And that was doubting Thomas, remember? That first Sunday evening appearance to the ten, Thomas wasn't there. The other ten told Thomas, hey, we've seen Him. He's risen. It's real. It's for real. The ladies were right, which you usually are. Right, guys? We hate to admit it. Just the other day, I had to tell my wife, you were right. I probably should tell her that more than I do. It's not easy. You were right. The ladies were right. That's probably why 
Jesus chose to appear to them first. They saw and they believed. And the world says, seeing is believing. But remember what happened with Doubting Thomas. You see, God has it the other way around. God says, believing is seeing. In fact, if you go into the other Gospels and read about the encounter between Jesus and Mary Magdalene at the tomb, when she first encountered him, she didn't recognize him. Why? One, she wasn't expecting to see him alive. Two, he probably looked somewhat different than when she'd seen him before. But believing is seeing. When she heard his voice, again, the words of Christ, get it? She heard his voice, and then she says, my Lord. The world says seeing is believing. So Thomas goes, tells the other disciples, I'm not going to believe that he's risen till I can you know, see the wounds in his hand, put my hand in his side where the sword went in, then I'll believe. So one week later, the following Sunday night, Jesus shows up again. This is before they meet up with him in Galilee. But he shows up again. This time, Thomas is in the room. Jesus very graciously, just like when Jesus got down on his hands and knees, took off his outer garment and washed the disciples' feet, the King of Kings did that, folks. That's the servanthood of Christ, the humility of Christ. And so even though Thomas was way out of line, Jesus is standing there in the room and he still wants proof. Jesus accommodates him. He says, okay, take a look. See that it's me. Immediately Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Okay, Thomas, great. <laughs> Jesus says, you've seen and you've believed. That's great. But blessed is he who has not seen and has believed. How is that possible? How is it possible to believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God who rose from the dead 2,000 years ago without seeing him? Because when you believe his words and you receive him as your Lord and Savior by faith. By the way, what is there in this life that doesn't require faith? Think about it. When you got married, that took some faith, right? Faith that this is going to work out. We're going to stay together. We're going to make this work. Our love is real. Our commitment is real. When you get in your car and put the key in the ignition, that takes faith. You have faith that it's going to start, right? Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> Most of the time it does, fortunately. And then after it starts and you put it into gear, you have faith that it's going to go down the road and you have faith that you're going to get from point A to point B with no altercations, right? Everything about this, people don't realize that. They say, I, I, I just don't have the faith. Everything we do in this life requires faith. And there's no one or no thing more worthy of your faith and my faith than Jesus Christ. He has proven himself time and time and time again. The world says seeing is believing. Thomas said, show me and I'll believe. Jesus said, blessed is he who has not seen and has believed. None of us here today have seen Jesus in person, in the flesh, so to speak. But we believe, do we not? How many of you here today believe? Amen. John 5, 24, our final verse this morning. 
Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word, what did he say? Hears my word and believes him who sent me, the Father, has, who sent me, has eternal life and will not be judged. And by the way, that's something the enemy tries to do. Please understand that. Once you have put your faith in Christ and you receive forgiveness of your sins, does that mean you are now automatically perfect? No. We're still sinners saved by grace. Now, when we see Jesus face to face, guess what? We will be perfected. Not by our own efforts, but by Him. He will perfect us. We will have immortal, eternal, glorified, incorruptible, imperishable bodies. And the Bible says we will be like Him. That happens when we see Him face to face. But in the meantime, we are saved by grace. We live by grace, by faith in Him, not by our own works. Whoever hears my word and believes in Him who sent me has eternal life. That's a promise. And will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. You've probably heard that term, dead man walking. They use that term for those who are on death row in prison. Dead man walking. Without Jesus, every human being is a dead man or a dead woman walking. But in Christ, O oh death, where is your sting? We've passed from death to life. The angel reminded the women at the tomb of the words of Jesus. Remember his words. Sadly, so many people today are basing their spiritual lives, if you will, on emotions, feelings, philosophies of men. But what brought these women into a full understanding of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that it was true, it was real, he has risen. Remember his words. When you get into difficult situations, your feelings, chances are, will not bail you out, deliver you, but the words of Christ will. Immediately afterward, they saw their risen Lord. Do you truly want to see Jesus? believe his words. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word which has been preserved for us over these last 2,000 years and beyond. The Old Testament going back way beyond that. But 2,000 years since the advent of Christ, the incarnation, his life, his perfect sinless life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, your words, your representation of yourself, and of your Son, Jesus Christ, have been preserved for us in spite of many efforts to destroy it, to tear it apart, to water it down, to dilute it, to change it. Your word has remained intact. And the words of Christ, they are life. Father, we thank you that we have the, this word which is made known to us, the truth. The truth about who we are, the truth about who you are, the truth about what you've done for us and the truth about what is available to us, all the glorious, wonderful, precious promises that you've given to us in your word, none more important, none more precious than the promise of eternal life, of the resurrection of the dead. 
that even as Christ rose, that all those who put their faith in him will one day rise as well. That death cannot hold us down. We've been delivered, we've been set free, we've been brought from death into life. And that's the resurrection. That's what it means to us. We thank you and we praise you. We pray for anyone here this morning who has not yet experienced that resurrection power in their own life. God, we ask that you would draw them to yourself even now. And Lord, we read about the importance of enduring, of hanging in there, finishing the race, not denying you. And I pray if there's anyone here today who has lost their endurance, they've begun to drift, to get off track, off the right path, that you would bring them back today, that they would realize and understand that you're a God of new beginnings, fresh starts, second chances. You're a God of mercy and grace and love and forgiveness. And Lord, they can get back on track today. They can get back on that pathway of endurance. And that you're calling out to them to return because you love them. You promised in your word you would never leave us or forsake us. Lord, sometimes we will drift. We will depart. We will turn away, but you never will. We saw that when we are faithless, you are faithful. Lord, we pray that anyone here today that's discouraged, downhearted, disappointed, that you'd bring them back into the fold, into the body of Christ, and back into the sheepfold, that they would return, recommit their life to you, and get back on that pathway that leads to eternal life. Lord, just touch each heart now as we close. We give you praise and honor and glory. And we once again, we proclaim that he is risen. In Jesus' name, amen.